Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII. When last we left our heroes, uh, they were standing in the aftermath of the catastrophe that is the destruction of the Sector Seven plate, and therefore all the people living both on it and below it. And, you know, it's one of those scenes that I've heard people say didn't impact them as much back in the day because of the older graphics. And I've seen a lot of people citing this as, you know, one of the reasons they're really excited for the remake, because this will be a scene that has more impact. And I actually totally understand where they're coming from there, because in hindsight, this did feel kind of small, but I never felt a lack of emotional impact from it, uh, particularly because of our attachment to Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse, who all perish in this event. Yeah, I think one of the ways to make a big event like this feel personal is to, yeah, have that attachment to Biggs and Wedge and Jesse. Uh, We've talked about this before, how we want to save the world not only because it is the the point of playing the game, but also because we know Matoya, right? We know uh, Sid and Mid. Uh, we, you right. know, we know all these characters throughout, and we've made friends with them, uh, or at least interacted with them. And so, yeah, it it does not show the breadth of the destruction in the original Final Fantasy VII. If you've seen any of the trailers, uh, I think we're going to see the breadth of that destruction. And I think that can have uh, a bigger impact for some people. I think for me, it will be just a, another way to experience that that tragedy. But the way the original game does it, it really does focus in on Barrett uh, swinging out on that on that cable with with Cloud riding on one shoulder and and Tifa on the other, and they just barely get out in time. And and so yeah yeah it re- really focuses in. These are the three people we're following escape this destruction. And we get it from their their most immediate experience. And I think it's mostly sold through Barrett's emotional response to it. He's been so singularly focused up to this point on bringing down the Shinra Corporation and fighting for the planet. And in this moment, He is just a leader who has lost his team. He also believes here for a moment that his daughter has died. Yes. Uh, And and he screams out their names. Marlene, Biggs, Wedge, Jesse. He punches at the wreckage. He fires his gun uh, in the air and and at the wreckage of just destruction, whatever's left there, and lets out a big goddamn. uh, And, you know, suddenly... Him being a character who swears isn't being played for laughs anymore. It's actually important that he's a character who swears because he needs it for this moment. We get all of the emotional impact of the people who died in this from Barrett's response uh, before they do kind of have to start to move the story along a little bit more. I do want to draw a quick parallel. Star Wars, A New Hope, right? We see Alderaan destroyed. Uh, sure. And the only reaction we get is Princess Leia's, 
right? Darth Vader is there. They order the destruction of the planet. We see Princess Leia see it on the view screen and it explodes and she has this big reaction and she should and that makes sense, but it's only her reaction. In Force Awakens, right? When the, the new bigger, badder Death Star destroys that planet, we get it from the, we get to see the reaction of the people on the planet as they're about to be obliterated. And it's, it's different. I don't know that it's better or worse, but it's, it's definitely different. So I think that's a, another way to compare how to do these kinds of big destructive scenes. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, it, it just sort of focuses more and more and more. Tifa probably trying to comfort him in some way, give him some bit of good news here in this moment, uh, but also remembering something that Aerith had said uh, just before they took off, says to Barrett, I think Marlene is safe. So there's, you know, some good news and some hope there and something for him to turn his focus to now. He's just got to go find his daughter. You know, takes one last minute to recognize that Avalanche essentially no longer exists. And they have this, um, you know, other real tough conversation that we talked about when Jesse wonders whether or not they bear some responsibility for this. And Tifa wonders as, a, as well. She says, is it our fault? And Barrett kind of gets to finally now give the, the argument, the counter argument that you were starting to make before that Jesse and Cloud didn't really have time to. He says, no, it's the damn Shinra. They're evil and they're destroying our planet just to build their power, and line their own damn pockets with gold. If we don't get rid of them, they're going to destroy this planet. Yeah, I, and I think that's important because there is some culpability, right? We talked about culpability when with Avalanche. And they did, they have killed people. They have hurt people. They have blown things up. But it seems like, at least in this world, the only other option is to just let Shinra do whatever they want. And that's not okay either. You you can't just let the bullies say, well, I'm in charge now and we're going to do things my way because I said so. And if you try to stop me, well, I'm going to, I don't know, what's a mob boss thing. I'm going to cut off your horse's head and stick it in your bed. Right. And And so we should just let it happen. That's not okay either. Right. And I think it parallels the culpability conversation we'll have later on with Sephiroth. There is a fair question to be asked about what have we done to create this situation, but ultimately the person doing the terrible thing is the person doing the terrible thing or the, right. the entity doing the terrible thing, and they bear the responsibility. So I'm glad they put that point into the mouth of Barrett Wallace, and he gets to resume being a, a moral center of our story here. Uh, there's a bit more conflict between the characters that are really not sure what to do next. Tifa isn't sure, you know, if she wants to even keep fighting. Cloud is really worried about Aerith. And then Barrett gives, you know, the kind of, there's no turning back now speech. And Cloud decides, I need to know more about this whole ancient situation. He says that out loud and we get another wonky yes. cloud moment. Uh, yeah, uh, we do. And, and this is why I'm not surprised. <laughs> Whatever. The remake's coming up. 
um, that we see <laughs> Sephiroth in the trailers is because of these types of moments. In the original game, a black screen with text that just says, in my veins courses the blood of the ancients. I am one of the rightful heirs to this planet. Super cool and mysterious and ambiguous. We don't know who's saying it or what it is, but the moment you have to put that line into the voice of an actor, mm-hmm. we're going to know who yeah. that is. Yeah. And so if you're going to take away some of the mystery anyway, you might as well have these flashes that I, I think we're seeing in the trailer be a bit more concrete for Cloud because it's clearly what's happening to him here. In fact, he responds to this for the first time out loud. He actually responds to one of his episodes by saying, Sephiroth? Right. And this suggests that it's it's Sephiroth who has been in his head this whole time. Or Genova for every... Yeah, but yes. Sure, sure. <laughs> that that yes. there is some connection between whatever Sephiroth is now and whatever Cloud is now. There's some sort of a psychic link or... or uh, something along those lines. And there is definitely more going on here, more than just a greedy energy corporation uh, trying to drain the, the planet of its life force. I think parallels the hint that we are about to get, uh, about to emerge into a bigger world. Uh, I love it so much. It's so good. All right. So then they decide, okay, we, we've got to go to the place that makes most sense is Aerith's house, where we know she was the one who was taking care of Marlene, so it would make sense that she would take her there. And also, we might want to go tell Elmira that we lost her daughter again. Oh, jeez, yeah. And so the team does that, and... You know, you you get this interesting response from Elmira. She's not angry. Uh, She instead decides to explain to the party what it is that's going on here, why the Shinra are after Aerith. And she tells this story, and it's just this beautiful little flashback sequence. It's very melancholy, um, but... She just comes right out and, you know, says, Aerith is an ancient, the sole survivor. Explains that she's not her real mom and then flashes back to 15 years ago. So another one, God, this game flashes back a lot if you're yes, trying to does. keep your timelines. <laughs> we hear again about the war with Wu Tai, this thing that's talked about but never really seen unless you've played Crisis Core years later. Right. And she says her husband went off to the war and so this is giving us more context for we remember when cloud was a young kid and wanted to go off and fight in this war it's the war that sephiroth became a globally known hero in and as often happens you know he he didn't come home and she would go to see him at the train to see if he was going to come home and we get this uh, reminder that we have talked to this train man many years later, and he'd mentioned years of seeing tragedy and just kind of getting used to it. Doesn't he also say that he, he sees the, the happiness too, right? Right. Because there's a couple, in, in one of the scenes of the flashback, she's waiting for her husband, uh, and he she sees other people get off the train, right? And there are some really cute, like, 
pick you up and twirl you around moments and and right. she doesn't get that right but one day she arrives at the train station and she finds a woman dying there on the platform she says you would see that a lot during the war and also no one is helping her which yeah. i don't think is an accident i think that's a comment right uh the, well and the train man's standing there not doing anything on the other hand what would you do right uh there are two really interesting Final Fantasy VI parallels here that I want to mention. One is that this scene of the dying woman with a young girl parallels Terra and her mother, who died when she was very young and, and left behind right. an orphan. And also the story... And, you know, people never coming home from war isn't exactly the most original story, but it also parallels a little bit to me Daryl and sets her with, with Daryl never, sure. just never coming back. She just never comes back, yeah. Right. I like the idea that Terra parallels Aerith because Terra is our, our demigod character, right? She's the... She's like Cecil. She is the uh, the child of a, a human and a non-human, and that non-human is is super powered. And then, so that you know, Terra becomes Hercules. She becomes Jesus. She becomes the 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 figure who's going to be the the savior of of all sapient life on the planet. Uh, and her name is Terra. So she you know she represents in a way the planet. Aerith does too in a lot of ways. Uh, she is the one who can speak with the planet. We will, we, we sort of have learned and we'll learn more here shortly. Uh, she's not, however, a, a demigod in that way. She is, uh, or at least she, she appears to be full-blooded ancient, uh, whatever that means. But she is also sort of that, that savior character, right? She's the caretaker. She's the, the one who does the best with magic, especially white magic. All her limit breaks are white magic. And she is... Yeah, she's the one who's going to, at least so far, the story seems to be setting her up to be the one who is the key figure in saving all sapient life on the planet. So I, I enjoy that uh, they they parallel each other in, I mean, it, it kind of sucks to say, but that they also parallel each other in that their parents are killed They're right in front of them. Aerith, on the other hand, is fortunate that she is not found by Emperor Shinra, but rather uh, right. Elmira. It's not right away. Anyway, they, they, <laughs> Fair enough. They be, they be coming after her the whole time, but that's right. Elmira explains that, you know, I was lonely, and this baby girl clearly was going to need someone, so I adopted her. She was a very lonely girl, but she loved to talk, she explains. She's always very talkative. And there's actually some exposition about much deeper stuff here that will probably on a first read through or play through fly over the average person's head certainly did mine um, but they say right here she says she told me that she had escaped from a research laboratory yeah and that her mother had returned to the planet two phrases that right now might not mean anything to cloud and tifa and barrett but will eventually come to mean everything right to them. yes oh man there's also this really interesting moment where Elmira asks for a clarification if Aerith meant 
a star in the sky that her mother had returned to a planet. And Arrow says, no, this planet. Right. Yeah, that's that's cool for... Uh, th- there's an idea that uh, people who die go to heaven, and heaven is the cosmos, and the cosmos are the sky. Uh, but that's not what's going on in this game, or typically in Final Fantasy. Uh, returning to the planet is is more that idea that you know there's there's this life force that we call mako and uh we all return to to that uh in the end um there's sort of that you know to parallel star wars again the idea of the force uh when a when a person dies that they sort of return to the force and some people can sort of retain their selves in the force uh yoda and obi-wan do that right Right. And, so, and we don't get that full explanation until later, but it's all planted right here. Yeah. And in these flashbacks, Eris starts talking about how she can talk with the planet, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it gets really cool and interesting here. There's one moment I wanted to point out, actually, because I think it's a clever bit of editing and visual storytelling that wouldn't have been possible without it being in 3D, I think it's these kinds of moments that really sell the experience and inspired some of the people who've gone on to create some of the most celebrated story-driven games of modern times. And it's this little thing, but it's an edit because Elmira's speaking. We're back in regular time now, modern time. And Elmira is speaking to the group and explaining, no, 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 she told me this planet, which I thought was really interesting. And then, while we're still looking at our characters in modern time, we get a text box at the top of the screen of Aerith saying, Mom. Yeah, that is neat. And then the camera pans up, and a young Aerith walks through the door. And when it pans back down, the party is gone, and Elmira is in different clothes, and we're back inside of the flashback. It's really well done, but it also is this great like mashup of the flashback and current times and memories and it ties into all of that so well too so in addition to just being good technical storytelling it also ties in with the themes and then Aerith says very plainly to Elmira someone dear to you has just died yeah and then she says back to our party you know I thought she was just being a really weird little girl and I knew she was weird and whatever but a few days later I got word that officially you know my husband had died in the war and then many years later you know they they just sort of become mom daughter try to live normally and then the Shinra finds out where she is we see Sang showing up saying return Aerith to us um he says that Aerith will take us to a land of supreme happiness. Yeah. And even tells Elmira that Aerith will bring happiness to all those in the slums. Because we always know that giant corporations share their wealth with the least among us. And it's always a, a raising all boats situation, right? Yes. And, and that it, it sort of seems like Seng is, uh, he seems to believe it. Like he seems to be a believer. In this, or at least in, in this flashback, it, it has always struck me that he seems like 
He's coming to steal this little girl, to kidnap this little girl away from her adoptive mother because he believes that the promised land exists. He, oh, he doesn't call it the promised land. The land of supreme happiness. Not yet, but that's what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, they'll, right? they'll get to the promised land here in a bit. And that, you know, we're all going to go there and we're all going to be happy if you will just listen to me and give me this little girl. Yeah. Eek. And, yeah, right. The, the power of that kind of thinking uh, it can really mess people up. And so she just insists that she's not special. But he says, you know, don't you hear voices? She says, no. And she runs out no. Of I don't know what you're talking no, about. <laughs> hearing voices. Noises. Is that damn tractor out there? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we come back to present time again. And Elmira says that Aerith traded herself for Marlene that Shinra showed up and she just made sure that they would leave Marlene there, which of course makes Barrett feel horribly guilty and upset, but also super relieved that his daughter is there and safe. Like this total extreme mix of emotions. Um, yeah. And he seems to be showing a lot of restraint here because it, now he knows, oh, my daughter is upstairs. He does not immediately sprint up the stairs. He takes the, the time to say thank you and I'm sorry uh, and right. then doesn't, like, Elmira scold him? She does. She says, how could you leave her alone? And, and <laughs> this is the first time we're really, I think, it's kind of been obvious, like, under the surface. But we're faced with this question, like, Barrett's off fighting the man all the time. He keeps leaving his daughter behind. And, and he says, look, I have to fight for the planet. And this is a different version of, I mean, you even see like in sports films, the athlete dad who can't spend enough time with the kid because he's always on the road for much worse reasons. But this is a real, you can see Barrett is torn here between something he feels like he has to do for everybody in the world and something he has to do for the person who's the whole world to him. This is also the struggle of a single parent. You got to go to work to yes. provide for your kid, but that means... Sometimes you're leaving your kid by themselves. And and what's the trade-off? Absolutely. So, you know, and then Tifa starts feeling blame to everyone. The plenty of blame to go around. Right, it's all right. my fault for getting Aerith involved. And, you know, they, they kind of just agree, though. Like like you said, the, the point is here. Shinro's not going to stop coming after people. They're not kidnapping your daughter they're kidnapping someone else's daughter. If they're not performing experiments on you, I promise you they're performing it. Well, we'll get there. Right. But right. they've got to take the fight to the man. They've got to get Aerith back. And the only thing that makes sense here is to leave Marlene with Elmira, who's mm -hmm. clearly capable right. of taking care of somebody. And the rest of the team's got to go after him. And, you know, Elmira even says to the group, though, just don't get yourselves killed. Like, poor Elmira does have the role in this game of, like, just waiting around for bad, terrible, sad things to happen. And when you think, you know, into the future. Uh, so uh, the crew, you know, decides they got to uh, find a way up and you got to kind of look around a little bit. But eventually you find your way again to the kind of side of the wreckage of the disaster from the plate collapse and you find the golden shiny wire of hope Gee, as christmas 
Barrett <laughs> calls it. Uh, well, and you know what's really funny about this is I always had thought that this was a silly or poor translation like a lot of people do. And I think it's because I had read media that used it as an example of poor translation. But just like in Final Fantasy X, people using the laughing scene as an example oh, sure. of bad voice acting, totally wrong. Cloud straight up laughs at Barrett for his golden shiny wire of hope. He says, it's a bad analogy, dude, but I get what you're trying to say. Right. Um, Barrett's feeling literally all of the emotions right now. And hope wasn't one of them until he saw this little wire hanging down that we can climb up this, we can get on top of this area and take the fight straight to Shinra. He's holding on to something. He's not going to be the most articulate version of himself. I hope that they, even if they change it, whatever the remake, I hope he's equally as inarticulate in this moment. Sure. I think it's just so endearing. You want it to be some sort of a, a, a goofy... Like, like the the feeling is there even if the words aren't, right? Right, and we also need a little bit of levity right now. Yeah. Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse all just died. We just heard this story about how Aerith became an orphan and she's been kidnapped. We're happy Marlene is safe, but it's come at quite the price. Like, we need to laugh. Right. And all the people, like, as you're walking to find your shiny golden cable of hope, or whatever it is, like people are talking about. Oh my God, I can't believe this just happened, and we should get out of here. But where would we go? How would we even move? Like, you know, we don't have the resources to do that. I guess we just have to stick around and like choke on the dust of Sector Seven. Yeah. So there's another scene where you basically just crawl up a series of beautifully painted backdrops mm-hmm. of garbage and trash and wreckage there's like you're like climbing up trains that have been derailed that mm-hmm. are now up and down and bits of track and other bits of wire and highway that are just mashed together um aren't there uh there's like a couple of kids at the top of part of the wall just staring out over the wreckage and yeah it's it even back then man it really was something to behold uh it, it, it was just mind-blowing what you were kind of looking out at and you gotta there's this whole thing where you gotta go get batteries and make propellers and street signs sure move and light <laughs> up so that you can get to the right place and it's just a mess of wreckage it's so yeah it's it, i always thought it was extraordinarily powerful um then you get to the top and we get a pan down shot from the very top of Shinra Tower, which we've seen a couple of times here and there, but this is our best you know, full-on look at it. And it pans down, and we get our hero shot of mm-hmm. Cloud, Barrett, and Tifa in action stances, looking up at this monster of a building ready to take on the world. As they approach, there's also a really interesting telling bit of dialogue where Barrett says, Hey man, you ought to know this building pretty well. Cloud reveals, he says, Not really now that I think about it. This is the first time I've been here. Yeah, that is 
that's interesting because it could be that I mean maybe your your adventurer hero types who you employ don't come to the ivory tower they don't come to headquarters right they're they're always out in the field I could kind of see that job. yeah they got they got stuff to do out there but you're right it is it is telling of something more going on here and so it's decision making time Barrett wants to bust in the front door shoot off the gun tell President Shinra hello my <laughs> name is Anigo Montoya yep you know and um, Tifa's like you know, there's a giant stairwell over here. And we can maybe avoid some trouble. They say that every floor above the 60th is a special floor. We gotta get up real high. So maybe let's do that. What do you wanna do, Aaron? Well, if I recall correctly, the first time we played, we decided to run up the stairs and not just bust in. I'm not sure what decision I'm gonna make, assuming we're allowed this decision in the Final Fantasy VII Remake. Um, I think I chose that way because uh, I was worried about the number of potions I had. Oh, very practical. Very practical. I yeah. think I chose that way because it seemed the more logical thing to do. Um, it's a very large building, presumably. There are lots of guards, and I figure the more secretive we can be about this, the better. So sure. let's, let's take that route. Uh, for the, the sake of this podcast. Uh, though, yeah, if you go in the other way, you just do a bunch more fighting. And right. It's probably good for, like, leveling up and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. Do you want to be um, practical or do you want your superpowers? Come on. Right. But I love, actually, the monotony of... Yes. <laughs> ...having to climb up all those sets of stairs and the characters getting tired and some of the dialogue they share. Um and and I hope that they keep it exactly as monotonous in the remake where you literally have to run up all of the stairs it might not be 60 flights of stairs but it also might be I mean it takes a while yeah so what follows uh, once you get to level 60 is you've got to get all these key cards and there's a bunch of little mini games here where you've got to you got to talk to everybody and then you pretend to be a maintenance man and then and that's how you get a key card to go up to the next spot and then you got to look through a whole bunch of files you actually meet mayor domino the mayor of shinra or excuse me the mayor of midgar the city uh who complains about having no real power and he's just a librarian to which i say hey being a librarian is important um <laughs> Uh, but he will eventually give you the next key card, and he admits that he wants revenge on Shinra because they've usurped his power. Uh, or, or, you know, I think he says something like, you know, they torture me with this busy work, which, you know, you got to, you're not tortured. You're living up here. You're not in the slums, jerk. Right. But then there's a, there's a bunch of little things you can do. There's a gym, there's a cafeteria. You got to go through the files to guess the correct password. You go th- through some air vents, you get some coupons, you get some items. Uh, lots of uh, little different things that are potentially fun and interesting, but not like from a gameplay standpoint. I love that there are all these other little things to do that are kind of spy-like, kind of uh, Metal Gear-like, as opposed to uh, getting to random battles Final Fantasy-like. But they do kind of amount to not a, not a lot. You just sort of do them to move on. Uh, the The next important scene that comes up is when you're in these vents, you uh, find yourself in the vents above the boardroom. And there is President Shinra 
and some of his top advisors, including Heidegger, Palmer, Scarlett, and Reeve. This is our introduction to Scarlett, right? We haven't seen her before. The other characters we've at least seen a little bit of. I believe that's correct, yes. So she is the, I mean, kind of on the nose, but wearing the long scarlet dress yep. and blonde hair and um, ruthless, as uh, just as ruthless as Heidegger, uh, certainly far more so than Reeve. And that becomes clearer throughout the course of the game. So Scarlett is head of weapons development. And during this meeting, we Shin, Shinra says, we're not going to rebuild Sector 7. We're going to focus on our Neo Midgar plan. And furthermore, that we're going to have a 15% rate hike on Mako Energy. And Palmer, uh, the, the little round dude... That's right. We're Once. also introduced to him here, yeah. Uh, oh, is this his first introduction? Uh, I in, so. In either case, he wants that put to the space program, uh, but no, President Shinred's call going to Heidegger and Scarlet. So he's pushing hard for whatever this Neo-Midgar thing is and, you know, to heck with the little people, basically. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned, uh, getting the password, if you go through that library and find all the book titles you can solve that little mini game but it's also some of the titles are interesting i don't have any of them right in front of me but they give hints to things like shinra's experimentation with mako energy and to the space program the failed space program which is what palmer was involved with that will become very important to a character we haven't even met yet so really good like seeding of some of these things but yeah, we're getting more and more sense of the hierarchy of Shinra here. There's a burgeoning dynamic between Heidegger and Scarlet where they have sort of the same ruthless attitude, but they also kind of hate each other, uh, which is great. And then the worst of all of them walks into the room. Yeah, Ugh, greasy looking Arguably, dude. people, this is always a fun argument to make too. Uh, you, you know, Sephiroth is the villain of the game if you're doing like a game faq polls like who's the top villain like you know there's no question but if, you, if you're really like philosophically asking yourself the question who is the baddest worstest bad bad guy in final fantasy 7 uh, Genova is an interesting conversation but hojo i think is my runaway <laughs> sure i i feel like hojo is to uh president shinra as kefka is to emperor gastal He's yeah. the he's the guy who has no compunctions about experimenting on people and sacrificing people. Not that President Shinra has any compunctions about sacrificing people. He just dropped, you know, this giant city plate on, on thousands of people and killed thousands upon thousands. Uh, but Hojo's the one who's like the greasy. He's the worm tongue, right? He's the yeah, yeah, the the gross yeah experimenting finger, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's, you know, we've talked a lot about how Final Fantasy VII's, like, inverses a lot of tropes, so to have Kefka be the most outlandish in appearance, and here is Hojo, who is just wearing a white doctor's coat, right. glasses, slick back, black ponytail, very unassuming appearance, and he doesn't speak, you, you know, like he's crazy, except for the things he says. 
So this is where we learn that, uh, yes, they have Aerith. Hojo specifically has Aerith. That, yeah, they're trying to get to the promised land. This is where we hear about the promised land for the first time. We don't really know what that means or what it is or where it is or how to get there. But we do know that the ancients are involved. They need Aerith for this. Somehow Aerith is going to lead them to the promised land, whatever that means. And Hojo says this weird kind of creepy thing about uh, this specimen is not as strong as her mother. Uh, and then Shinra says something like, uh, how long will it take? And he says, oh, maybe 120 years. That's why we thought of breeding her. Like, Wait, what? Gross. What is wrong with you, you creepy, creepy man? Which, which apparently puts a crimp in the uh, Neo Midgar plan. Again, whatever that is. But now we do know that Aerith is on the premises and we can rescue her. So after spying in on this meeting, the party decides we're going to follow this creepy Hojo guy because he seems to have Aerith. That's what we came for. We got to get our friend back. So we do as such and follow him into his laboratory. We're going to wait for him to leave and approach one of several large like glass encasings he's got in this room like this is clearly a bad science yeah th- like, yeah this is this is a room where very horrible science happens similar to the magitech research facility you're yeah so there there's a couple things going on here uh the first one i think we should talk about is there's sort of this metal dome off to one side with a window in it and cloud goes and looks in and then he has they do that flash of light and oh my god thing and then we get a glimpse of a being that cloud calls genova and this appears to be uh the a torso of a woman who perhaps has an eyeball on her breasts it's not quite clear and it's kind of deliberately grotesque and Cloud is clearly freaked out about it, and Barrett sticks his head in and he says, where is its head? Yeah. Uh, so it seems to be a, a torso without a head that's being kept alive in this bad science room? Yeah. Of all the things you don't want to see. Yeah. <laughs> so disturbing. I'll never forget that image, ever. The first time you see Genova's just weird torso ambiguously there yeah the other thing uh significantly less grotesque and disturbing is there's a a red lion wolf type creature with a a fiery pokemon tail in a glass tube (laughs) and tifa immediately goes up to it and you know what is this this is interesting and sort of taps on the glass and doesn't get much of a response and there's there's nothing else you can really do in this room you're just meant to see genova and this red lion wolf creature. So we go upstairs and uh, we find yet another glass tube. In fact, it might be positioned right over the other glass tube uh, where the the red lion dude was. And Aerith is here. And we want to get Aerith out. And I think this is the first time Barrett and Aerith meet. Unless you count the helicopter kidnapping right. part. In any case, we're trying. we're going to try to let her out and then Hojo shows up. And Hojo's like, why, why would you try to stop me? I'm trying to help two extinct species. And we're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't what? get it. What I don't you... get it. So then he, he pushes a button yeah. and, and the wolf lion guy comes up on this elevator to, to I guess, fight Aerith. I don't get it. I don't get how that helps extinct species. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I might be way misinterpreting it, but especially with everything else that we know about how horrible Hojo is and some terrible things he's done, I'm pretty sure he's trying to breed the two of them. And not like in a sciencey kind of way. <laughs> like how ugh. in a glass tube? I, mm, uh, apparently, how did it wouldn't be the most horrific thing he's? I, how would you like? If they're just alone together long enough. They're gonna want to. I don't. I, I don't. I don't know if he assumes that the bestial one will just. That's super Do gross. Stuff? Super, super gross. <laughs> yeah. It, Though, I to be so. fair, the bestial one does immediately uh, seem like it's going to attack Aerith. And so, uh, Correct. Uh, Barrett breaks the glass with his gun arm, and and the the red one leaps through and, and begins to attack Hojo, which is like, right on. Good for you. Well done. <laughs> Hooray. Uh, and then they Friendo. they do uh, like I think the red one lets Hojo get away, uh, and then we, they do that thing where one of you go off with Aerith, and we're going to hold off this monster that's coming. So the lion, wolf man, and cloud, and either Barrett or Tifa will help you fight the monster. And after the fight, the the creature speaks to you. Yeah, <laughs> this is a. Okay, wasn't expecting that. Right, and so there's this whole race of people on this planet who are shaped like these lion-wolf creatures and apparently are super smart. And in the same way that Aerith is the last ancient, or Ketra, we learn from Hojo, this this gentleman is the last of whatever his species is. I don't think we even get a name for his species, do we? I don't think so. Not in the game. That might be in one of the Ultimanias or something we could look up, but... Yeah, so we are introduced to Red 13. And actually, uh, I want to leave our conversation on in a little bit deeper of a character study on him till the next episode. Um, Just because I think there's a lot to get into here. And I want to wrap up this segment of the game. But also because we aren't given much of a chance to get to know Red 13 quite yet here he says that that's what hojo called Mm him uh he's got the 13 tribal tattoo Mm -hmm. um on one of his legs and um you know uh, speaks with a kind of elevated tone he's he's got advanced vocabulary but that's pretty much all so we get this idea of him being kind of this wise creature um and and he's super fun and obviously you know from a gameplay mechanic you're just super excited about this non-human character in your party who kind of functions differently and looks super cool and this is dope like he's got a dope character design but we don't really get time to know him more than that until later for now we've got to uh Rush after the man. So we, we've got Aerith. We've got a new buddy. It's time to get the heck out of here. Uh, unfortunately, we are met by a bald-headed Turk. We are captured by oh, Rude. rude. Uh, and Seng shows up. And man, we don't, I want to smack that guy right on his face. Uh, He's owed at least one slap. At least one. But essentially, we are captured and we are taken before the emperor. I mean, the president. Right. 
So we, we're uh, brought before President Shinra, and he gloats a bit. He talks about how we can't stand in the way of him getting to the Promised Land. One of the important things that is made clear is the Promised Land is described as a very fertile place. And if it's very fertile, and our guys go, oh, there's going to be a lot of Mako energy, and you're just going to strip mine the place, aren't you? You just want to get right. to the Promised Land to have more energy, to control all the energy, to make more money. What a creep. Yeah. And uh, Barrett is ready to throw down. He wants to have words with, uh, with President Shinra, but uh, we are hauled off to jail and thrown in these cells. Aerith is in her own cell. Tifa and Cloud are in a cell together, and Red 13 and Barrett Wallace are in a cell together. There is a bit here where you can, you know, I wonder how so-and-so is doing, and you get a little bit of dialogue. So, you know, if you wonder how Red is doing, he, he's kind of worried about his grandfather, and Barrett laughs at him, which is kind of a dick thing to do. Uh, if, you worry, yeah. if you worry about Barrett, uh, Barrett is um, trying to figure out how to continue the fight and asks Red if he wants to join, and after getting laughed at, Red just basically ignores him. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, dude. Politic a little better, man. Right. right. Worrying about Aerith gets you into the love triangle awkwardness uh, because Aerith is, is talking about, you um, You know, I'm, I'm okay, and I appreciate you coming for me, and you rescued me again, and I owe you a date, right? And Tifa's like, I'm sorry, what now? Uh, <laughs> and Aerith says, oh, Tifa's in there with you, huh? Hi, t- hi, Tifa. Hey, How? Hey. Yeah, nothing uh, going on here. <clears throat> yeah. And so there's some of that. Uh, like the, neither of them, they don't do that thing where either of them dislikes the other, but they do kind of change the subject pretty quick and uh, on to, you know, we got to get out of here. Right. What are we going to do next? But there's really nothing to be done at the moment. So everybody just sort of settles in and goes to sleep. And when you wake up, that music is playing. We've talked a handful of times about Final Fantasy dipping its toes in the pool of horror and scary stuff. The dancing Calcabrenna is legitimately freaky. There's some moments in Six that are creepy, put you on edge a little bit. But this was the first time and I just and you're so not expecting it. You haven't really been in this mode. There have been like send chills down your spine moments like when Cloud freaks out and I don't know what's going on. And this is a dark game. It's been very dark. You you haven't seen the sun yet. Right. But this waking up everything is dark. All the cell doors are open and there's trail of blood on the floor with the music and everything this is it was legitimately like oh I'm like frightened for I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what's happening and what's going to happen to our characters it was deeply unsettling it is it's a weird experience because for some we don't know why the doors are open I don't know that it's ever explained but the guards are dead. The uh, 
this, there's a couple scientists around who are dead, uh, and you get you make your way to Hojo's lab. Uh, so the prison being right by Hojo's lab, disturbing in and of itself, if I may. Yeah, and not an accident. Right, and then yeah, there's this trail of blood leading from the Genova dome enclosure yeah. thingy, and Genova's not there, and you just follow the trail of blood. Yeah, you follow it all the way up the stairs straight into the boardroom and here's another image I will never forget bent over the table Masamune in his back is President Shinra dead and I was blown away by this back in 1997. I was certain he was the bad guy or right. you know maybe one of these other guys would emerge as the big bad guy at the end of the game but that Shinra was going to be this main antagonist. It's basically all Barrett has talked about. This has been the only thing this entire time we've been trying to stop this guy. He just did this horrible thing where he killed all these people we want revenge for it. We want that catharsis of the video game hero. And we arrive in his boardroom and he's just dead. And it's hard to have any sympathy for him. <laughs> and I, You have none, but don't. don't you also feel a little <laughs> bit empty? Don't you also yeah. like feel this like... Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I wanted that confrontation. It's actually... I, I feel that again in Final Fantasy IX when we don't get to take on the third waltz. <laughs> right. right. But there's, yeah, yeah, it's, but it underscores again that, that creepiness. And it, Cloud identifies that sword as belonging to Sephiroth, which means Sephiroth, one, is alive, and two, was just here, and three, has Genova, maybe? That's the conclusion we're certainly led to believe, that he arrived, grabbed Genova, killed everybody, including the president, and Right. Left. So does that mean he's an ally? Barrett, I think, even says, so that does that mean he's one of the right. good guys because he killed President Shinra? And I think we're like, right. uh, mm. maybe not, no. Mm, yeah. Also, he uh. left his sword in the man's back, which is, which is a big move. <laughs> yeah. There is, uh, Sephiroth isn't shy about including symbolism in what he's doing, uh, sending a message. Because that is, it's just an image, man. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, apparently word gets around fast. <laughs> no kidding. This happens really fast. Though, though first I want to point out that Palmer is there. Oh, right. Palmer's, Palmer witnessed the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, he said, I saw Sephiroth. I saw what happened. Uh, and then he tries to run away, and Cloud and Bear both grab him real quick, like, hey, hey, hey we have some questions. Uh, yeah, so he explains that he, he saw Sephiroth and, uh, you know, he's coming for us and he eventually gets away. And this is just more of that great, you know, the kind of Jaws building that you build the monster before you ever let us see the monster. Yes, and indeed. this is really phenomenal work in that. You're just getting this sense of like, wait, the people we thought were the biggest antagonists of the game, we just spent how much time sneaking around or having to fight through all this stuff, and then they were easily able to capture us and throw us in jail. This guy waltzes in, kills everybody in the joint, including the president who runs the whole damn city, and then just bounces because right. that's not really his top priority. Yeah. Like, what 
in the world are we dealing with here? <laughs> well, what we're dealing with next is what you were just talking about, because a helicopter is arriving. <laughs> Opportunist <laughs> son of a bitch. Yeah. Imagine being that cold. I know. Well, and how did how did he learn about it? Did did Palmer call and tell him? Like yep. I, so yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> and cuz Palmer runs out there to meet him right away too. So uh, yep. the new president of Shinra. Are weird, man. I guess so. <laughs> so. So the man arriving on the helicopter is the vice president of Shinra who has not been here in town this whole time. The son of President Shinra, a white suited shotgun carrying Rufus Shinra. Uh, with his, with his auburn blonde hair and his dashing good looks, he's cute. Yeah, he just comes in. I, you know, I'm the president now. Apparently, that's how corporations are run here, or how this corporation is run. Uh, he just he comes in to take over. He came in to take over very quickly after his father's death, and now Cloud is going to fight him one on one, and and he's Cloud's going to say to the rest, "You guys get Aerith out of here. I'll handle this." He also gives this little speech, which is horrifying, about how his father was actually too lenient. Like, we've talked about how he did wage wars of propaganda. and He would try to use the media to win people over to his side and, and try to get the people to love him. And Rufus just goes, to hell with even all that. I'm going to make sure that people fear me. That'll be much easier. And like, wow, you're going to be worse? He also says it'll be cheaper. He says trying yeah. to rule them through propaganda is too expensive. It's not worth the money. It's funny to me when people say there's no evidence that the game is anti-capitalist. Like it's right. not anti an entire capitalist system. <laughs> if you're not seeing the comments on the downside of using only money as your basis for morality, which is how capitalism operates, that's clearly the comment that's being made here. Right. Hey, Drew, keep your politics out of my video games, would you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Keep <laughs> right. your politics out of Final Fantasy VII should be a non-political conversation. One oh, one of the uh, one of my favorite lines from President Jed Bartlett is, you know, we have a capitalist system, but we really we have uh, a combination of systems, right? We, we're pulling on all the levers a little bit, and it's trying to get that balance right. Right. So you're able to defeat rufus enough to escape at least um and but I, he he escapes us he does that the helicopter's leaving and he grabs onto the rung to to get away right right like i, I can come back to this later um there, there's sort of dueling things happen where as cloud is fighting one-on-one with rufus the rest of the team is trying to escape down the elevator shaft, and there's a boss fight. Pretty memorable one. It's a weird one looking back on it, and it'll be, I'll be very curious to see how they figure this out. But, um, yeah, boss fight down the elevator while, while you're going down the elevator. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's kind of a classic beat-em-up kind of thing where your characters are trapped in an elevator and, and a bunch of oh yeah bad guys like will sort of, of jump down. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, or like Ninja Turtles side-scrolling beat-em-ups. Uh, but yeah, to see that done where I'm on one elevator and you're on the other elevator and there's like a transformer tank thing. <laughs> <laughs> They're jumping back and forth and stuff. Yeah. I do like, uh, uh, it, it sort of parallels too in Final Fantasy VI when you're fighting as you're falling down the waterfall. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Which is actually more ridiculous. <laughs> Th- there is one other thing I wanted to mention. I, I wanted to mention it when we first got to Hojo's lab, but I forgot, so I'll just jump in here with it. All throughout Midgar, we're fighting like these robots and these mutants and these monsters. And it's kind of like, wh- why are there robots and mutants and monsters all through the slums of 
Midgar, and I, I'm pretty sure that once we get to Hojo's lab, the implication is that it's all Hojo's fault. He's right. the one who's uh, putting cybernetic enhancements on people. He's the one who's creating monsters and doing experiments and such. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think I think that's really interesting because if we think about Final Fantasy II, Emperor uh, Mateus opened the gates to hell and that's why there are monsters, right? Uh, in some of the other Final Fantasies, they just sort of imply that as things get more chaotic, more monsters appear. But here, it appears to be all Hojo's fault. So, yeah, that... Now President Shinra is dead, and President Rufus is here now. Uh, that Hojo is the one responsible for all these monsters. Uh, you're right; it does sort of make him the more subtle big bad of the game. So as we've mentioned throughout most of our episodes, the musical aspects of Final Fantasy is incredible. We've gushed over Nobuo Uematsu over and over and over again, and deservedly so. And we will more. And, and we will continue to do so. Uh, and one of the ways the games use those pieces is like, so throughout the, uh, you know, going up the tower, you don't hear the victory fanfare when you win fights. It's just that, that tense music the whole time. The, the creepy music we're talking about when uh, we realize something is wrong and then, oh my gosh, it's been Sephiroth. Again, that music is a hint as to what's going on. And this musical cue, as we're about to make our big escape from Shinra Tower, is, is driving and cool and epic. And I want to draw a bit of a comparison here. Uh, because I've recently been playing Dragon Quest XI. I played the original Dragon Quest in the 80s on my Nintendo. Uh, not all of it, but I... I rented it, and uh, I didn't like it as much as Final Fantasy. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to dig on Dragon Quest. I know it's got a lot of fans, and it is a worthy JRPG franchise. I want to contrast Final Fantasy VII here in this moment and Dragon Quest XI. Because while I think Dragon Quest XI is a lot of fun, I'm really enjoying it. I think it's got great art, great art direction, great music, great gameplay, uh, a fun story. I do also feel like Dragon Quest XI does not go to the same lengths as just about any Final Fantasy game I've played. For example, I'm several hours in, I feel like there's five tracks of music, and I feel like I've heard them all over and over again, and they're fine. They're not bad, but they don't... Again, I feel like it doesn't go to the same lengths. Uh, I feel like there's not the same variety of music. If there's a, if a suddenly a, a tense thing were to happen, in Dragon Quest XI, I would expect a new track, and we don't really get a new track. And they're not, they're kind of samey-same. They're kind of do the same thing over and over again. This particular musical cue, I think, underscores that fact. So on top of that bumping musical track, the Crazy Motorcycle, uh, which sounds very different from a lot of stuff we've heard from Uematsu, uh, we also get really our first extended in-game cinematic in Final Fantasy history. We've opened with a very brief one, and we've gotten these kind of moments of them, no longer than five to eight seconds. But here we see all of our 
main characters rendered into a full 3D, full motion video cutscene, hopping onto uh, Cloud gets on the motorcycle, Tifa and Barrett get in the truck, uh, and Red gets in the truck, and they bust through the glass on the ground floor of Shinra Tower and out onto the highway. And it was, it seems so tame by today's standards, <laughs> but this was the most action we had ever seen in a video game. It This moment right here, surpassing only the intro to the game we're playing now, but... The intro is not very action-packed, right? It's very cinematic right. and right. brings you into the world. This was a, a moment of adrenaline as the cloud busts through the glass and the motorcycle and you hit the street and we nobody had ever seen anything like this before. Yeah, this is a super cool scene. It, uh, it will live in my memory forever. Uh, yeah, just cloud getting to be a badass on the motorcycle and everyone piling into the truck. Uh, and and yeah, we're 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 escaping. We're out of here. Uh, and, and then you get a really cool mini game. Yeah, I would argue maybe the first great mini game. And it's not again by today's stage. We're like, what do you? This is this is some hacky <laughs> slacky uh-huh. garbage. It's it's wonky, but this was so much fun. You know, surpassing a lot of the Chrono Trigger stuff. We talked about that in that episode. Sure. Um, but again, there was so much more movement and excitement to this little segment where you're riding around with cloud and swinging the sword around back and forth. And, you know, this is kind of the, the beginning of like all those advent children scenes and all this stuff where guys are flying around on their motorcycles and swinging their swords around. And this is the silliest version of it. But at the time, man, just to suddenly be on a highway and feel like you're, we were playing a racing game where a minute ago we were playing an RPG and it felt like Final Fantasy VII just absolutely refused to stay in any lane, hold itself to any rules whatsoever. And because of that, as a player, especially in 1997, we had no idea what was going to come next. Literally no idea from moment to moment what genre... The horror, scary alien blood on the floor from just a moment ago, and now we're a superhero on the back of a motorcycle swinging our body-sized sword around and knocking soldiers off, and it was just this adventure unlike anything we'd ever seen before. And then you you actually just, you know, you have a boss battle at some point. You reach the end of the highway, which literally, like, the highway just cuts off, which is the first time I'd ever seen that, I think, like a still under construction bit of highway that just ends. It's always been a really intriguing image to me. And the party just stands there and looks out and recognizes that they're going to need to get to the bottom of this Sephiroth thing and that means that we're going to need to leave the city of Midgar and it wasn't until this point in the game originally that I realized wow we have spent the first 10-12 hours of this game entirely in one city 
we've not seen the world map yet where in any other Final Fantasy game we'd have been to three towns by now gone through much of the continent but this was a different way to start it out and I think an incredibly smart way to have this very focused group of characters in this place with very specific set of problems and then blow it all up both <laughs> sort of literally and then figuratively um, just one of the many many things that makes Final Fantasy 7 such a powerful and interesting experience <laughs> 